This is the Marketing Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Matt McWilliams. Matt is living proof that one can pursue one's passions in life and do so while making a profit. He started his first online business in 2001 at the age of 22, and today is one of the leading online business teachers. He's worked with more than 300,000 online business owners while running affiliate programs, product launches, and book launches for entrepreneurs such as Shark Tank's Kevin Harrington, Michael Hyatt, Brian Tracy, and Lewis House. Today, he coaches other small business owners, solopreneurs, and entrepreneurs on how to start the right online business, scale it, and eventually go full-time with it. He joins me on Uncorking Story today to discuss his career and new book, Turn Your Passions into Profits, The Proven Path for Building a Rewarding Online Business. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, nice to have you here, Matt. I'm going to ask you the same question I ask every uh, one of my guests, which is, where does your story as an author begin? Uh, it begins with that introduction just now. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think based on based on your podcast and, and the audience, like one of the things that I will just say, kind of, we can uncork kind of that hidden thing in the background that people don't realize until they do one of these where they, you know, this is done like well over a hundred podcasts for this book. Now I, it really is hard for me not to start moving my lips to the intro because I've heard it so many times and I've like, just, okay, again, full transparency. That is one of those things you have to be careful of, uh, you know, protect your voice. It's, it's hard when you do six, seven interviews a day. And, you know, I've, I've learned the little hacks like throat coat tea with, uh, what are these things called? Uh, Ricola, Ricola. I dissolve a Ricola in a thing of throat coat tea and, you know, all the little things like the, the pre-interview, the pre-interview warm up, like blow your nose, make sure you're not sniffling during the interview, you know, things like that. It's all those little things you don't think about till you do about 30 of them in a row. And then you go, wait a minute, I need to have a pre-game routine. So anyway, I, I just wanted to point that out. It was funny. I was like, I realized I'm like, I start moving my lips if I'm not careful. Um, my author journey, that, I, I mean, have, um, I would have read someone else's uh, biography or intros just to throw you off if I had known that. Like, 
four seconds in going, I never did that. I mean, for me, you know, it's the first book. Um, I've, I've been in books. I've written chapters in books, uh, kind of like the compilation books. Uh, I've read a book, you know, once. Um, now, I mean, I've read a bunch of books, actually. I'm, I'm an avid reader and listener. I, I, not quite my daughter's level. She reads about 400 a year. Um, I read about 150 to 200. So, um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've been involved in book launches. We've run, you know, number one bestseller launches for guys like Lewis Howells and Brian Tracy and uh, Jeff Goins and others. So I've been on all these different aspects of books, but I've, I was in that 88% of people who say, I want to write a book. I want to write a book and never did. So eight years ago, I started thinking about this book. Like I realized what my passion was and the whole point of the book is how to take your passions and turn them into profits because I've been on both ends of the spectrum. I've been in a, in a position where I had a business that I hated, but it was making such good money. And I've been in the place where I was like, I'm helping people, I'm changing lives, but guess what? The mortgage company doesn't take impact and influence as a form of payment. They only take money and I was ready to give up. So either way, you know, the whole premise of the book is like, either way, the world misses out on your message there. Right. And so eight years ago, I was like, I gotta, I gotta share this stuff. And, and I've done that. I've, I've coached, you know, hundreds of people and we've had courses, you know, for thousands and or more people, uh, a lot of high end stuff. And, you know, I'm like, well, not everybody can afford to, you know, pay $25,000 for coaching. Um, yeah, you're going to get the results, but not everybody can do that. Like, I know what it's like. The first course I ever bought, the first thing I ever bought was a $97 course from Corey Rudell back in the mid 2000s. And I was shaking when I bought that course. I remember when I bought my first $2,000 course, this course has made me millions, changed my life. The night that I bought it, the deadline was at 3 a.m. Eastern, midnight Pacific at 2.53 in the morning. I was in a hotel room hovering over the submit button, literally shaking. I had anxiety. I clicked the button to buy, closed the laptop and said, if for some reason that payment didn't go through, <laughs> if I fat fingered the number or something happened in the internet, the payment didn't go through. It was God's way of saying, you're not supposed to buy this course. And I went to bed and never even went through the course for six months. Wow. Finally went through it and it changed my life. But not, so I know what it's like to, to be in that position, but a book, you know, for 15 bucks on a Kindle, um, whatever it costs on Audible, you know, um, you know, hardback is like $28. I mean, but a book most everybody has access. It'll be in libraries. You know, people will have access to this book and it's a way of getting all those thoughts in there. No, I'm not with you one-on-one, -on -one, but that was for me, that journey from eight years ago going, we got to do this. We got to do this to finally in 2000, you know, it seems like you talk to a lot of people these days, big things happen started in 2000, right? <laughs> and finally right. had the space, the freedom, you know, in, in odd ways. We don't think of that being a year of freedom, do we? But for many people, it was. It was a year that they finally did the thing that they've been talking about doing for five, six, seven, 10, 15, 20 years. And for me, I had a little bit of room. And I got through the first third of the book. And then I hit the busiest season of my life. We were running some big product launches for clients. And I was as busy as I've ever been. And I looked at our ops guy, who's also my personal productivity guru, Robbie Miles. And I said, dude, I can't. Like the momentum's too palpable here. I've written a third of the book, you know, which was about 40,000 words. Yeah, we cut it down uh, and we'll talk about that later. But I written like 40,000 words. I'm like, Robbie, I can't stop. I have to get this book out, man. If I, if I, oh man, if I stop writing this book, I know what's going to happen. If I, if I miss one day, I know what's going to happen, man. I'm never going to finish this stupid thing. And I'm going to end up just talking about this five years from now. And I'm not doing that. So what do I do? And he's like, well, can you find 20 minutes a day? 
and I can get up 20 minutes early and I set my timer, I have my phone right here, same spot as it is right now. I put 17 minutes on there, came down every morning. I had the timer ready and I pressed go and I started typing and I wrote for 17 minutes and that timer went off. Uh, if I needed to finish a thought, I had a minute or two to finish the thought and I would finish it, boom, got to stop. And then I'd spend the last minute or so typing my notes for the next day. And for about four months, I finished um, a book, like an actual 300 page book. It was like 400 pages when I wrote the first draft. I finished a book 20 minutes a day, Yeah, you know, and um, I think two days out of that whole four months, I went over by a couple of minutes. And every other day, though, I just I, I wrote 200 words, 300 words at a time, knocked it out and finished it. Well, let's let's talk about how you got to the point where you know you you were a subject matter expert to to even think about writing a book. Um, so walk me through your your sort of career progression from mm -hmm. like first job all the way through kind of kind of present day. Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I always wanted to be a golf professional. Okay, you know, to play or play professional golf. Uh, I was a number one ranked junior player in the state of Tennessee for a couple of years. Uh, played at the University of Tennessee, was the number one player there. Um, left there and uh, went to a school called Middle Tennessee State University. It's called Middle Tennessee State because literally the geographic middle of the state of Tennessee is on the campus, you know. And uh, took them to their first NCAA tournament in school history. And I loved golf. And I'd always said with my best friend growing up, Hunter, we were ne we always said this we were never going to be that guy who grew up playing golf and then didn't play golf as a profession like we were either going to do something completely different but one thing we were never going to do is teach old ladies in purple sweaters how to play golf that was our thing old ladies in purple sweaters nothing against old ladies in purple sweaters just my grandmother well, clearly she was old and wore purple sweaters a lot but we were never going to teach them how to play golf and one day i was i was teaching these golf schools with my dad <laughs> you know where this is going, but I, I discovered this online marketing thing. I, I was working with my dad and we were doing these golf schools. I was 22 years old and I was making, you know, we get four students in a weekend, $2,000 a pop. My dad and I would split it halfway and, you know, 20 hours of work for $4,000 at the age of 22. <clears throat> Sign me up for that. Like I was, this was amazing. I was like, dad, what if we did some like online marketing? I, there's this website. I don't know if you heard of it called Google. You know, again, 2002, my dad never got on the internet a day in his life. You know, he passed away in 2005. I'm like, there's a website called Google and you like put in keywords and then if they search for them, you give Google some money and then they send you traffic and then you convert some of it. Well, today, and this is what I teach in the book, like build an email list, right? Nurture the relationship, have a lead magnet, turn the visitors into subscribers so you can nurture it and build fans and then sell, right? Back then, 2002, you came to my website, you either gave us $2,000 or you left. We converted about one out of 200 people, cost me 10 cents a click, 20 bucks. I acquire a $2,000 customer. And I remember very vividly, I'm sitting there on a, a Saturday all day. We had an ice storm in North Carolina, which meant that we didn't go anywhere. And I was, don't judge me, but I was watching an Alan McBeal marathon <laughs> on FX. <laughs> I'm sitting there watching Alan McBeal for like 14 hours. We made seven sales. I sat there watching TV all day and I made $7,000, 14,000 split two ways with my dad. I'm going, wow, this online marketing thing is amazing. Here's the problem though. Going back to that one day, we're teaching these golf schools. I hated teaching golf, loved playing golf, hated teaching it. Sure enough, made about a quarter of a million dollars in a little bit over a year and a half. 
at the age of 22, paying my mom 250 a month for rent. So basically I got more money than I to do, know what to do with. And I'm 22, which means I'm a moron, you know? And so I bought a bunch of stupid stuff. <laughs> and this lady about 75 years old in a lavender sweater shows up and I take my little flip phone 2.2 megapixel camera and I turn it out and I send it to my friend Hunter picture of this lady, this sweet old lady. She's one of the nicest people I ever met in her life. Nothing against her, but I said, kill me now. Now, Mike, you may know, may or may not know this, but a good female friend would call you immediately. She, a good female friend would fly across the country to be with you in your most down moment. She would bring a casserole, right? Oh, oh honey, I'm so sorry. And then she'd like hug on you, right? But like a good male friend, my friend Hunter responded back and said, haha, sucks to be you. And so that was the beginning of the end for me. I realized I did not want to do this anymore. And my dad, uh, a few months later, day after my birthday, 2003, fired me, or as I like to say, freed me from the shackles of doing a job I hate. And that was actually what led me to starting a business with Hunter, which is what led me to getting into this whole world. But the real genesis of it was that moment, uh, the moment when I got on Google and realized, wait, you can do stuff online and make money. Uh, you know, so fast forward today, as I said, I've been in multiple businesses where I had one business that I, I loved, loved what I was doing, have an impact on the world, changing people's lives. I had a blog in the early 2010s. Uh, Mike, I mean, I was getting, every day I was getting emails, Matt, you changed my life. You saved my marriage. You, you, uh, people were saying that I kept them from killing themselves. Like I, I was in the personal growth business. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm changing lives. I'm having an impact and an influence on the world. Problem is the mortgage company doesn't take those emails as form of payment. My kids soccer, they each cost about $2,000 a year. I can't forward them a tweet saying, thank you, Matt, for this content. And they go $200 off your soccer payment. Boom. I only right. need 10 more of those. And I've got free soccer for my kids. Like you can't do that. You have to make money. I've been on the flip side. As I said, I mean, how many 22 year olds make 150 to $160,000 a year? Very few, right? I hated what I was doing though. So I've been on both sides. The, the book is called Turn Your Passions Into Profits. Both of those are important. Not turn your passions into a successful blog with a lot of followers. Turn your passions into a podcast that has a lot of listeners. No, I've had those and didn't make very much money. No, we turn them into profits. It doesn't say turn any business that you possibly hate and despise and don't want to wake up early to do into a profitable business that makes you a lot of money so you can have a big house and get away from it six weeks a year and take vacations. That's not what it's about. It's about how do we have both. Right. And so my journey has been a part of seeing both of those spectrums and ended up here. Right. And I mean, at any point in time in your journey, did you track Calista Flockhart down, slide into her DMs and thank her for that Allie McBeal marathon that, you know, got yeah. you a few uh, thousand dollars? It was a, uh, it was a, uh, it was proof because I didn't get on the, I didn't get on the computer all day that day. Yeah. You know, that was the thing is it was work that I'd already done. And, and the, the, it was just, it was such an eye opening thing. And like I said, don't judge me. I've never, I've this fun fact. I watched like 13 episodes of Allie McBeal that day. I've never watched another episode. It's not because I didn't like the show. It's because it took an ice storm for me to ever <laughs> watch it in the first <laughs> place. And for, I got hooked on it. You know, here it was like, my mom was watching it or something. Like I said, I still live with my mom, you know, and uh, she was watching that. And I probably stuffed my face with a few too many Totino's pizzas and hot pockets that day. Um, and it was amazing. Like never leave the house. Don't even get on the computer, make money. You know, yeah. that was what it showed me. Right. So that, I mean, that's sort of the genesis of it. You're like, Hey, now this is possible. And then you yep. sort of parlay that into, okay, helping, you know, you know, your business out with your dad, then sort of leaving that after you realize, Hey, this is not my life's calling, but I've got all the building blocks of, of making a, 
a tremendous career, which obviously you took um, with your, it sounds like your friend and you, you kind of turned that into something much, much bigger than obviously yep. even the, the professional golf is. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, the line, uh, the original first line, first quote of the book that we had to change because if you know any, if authors will know this, that if you put a song lyric in a book, sometimes it can take you like two years to get permission to even include that. And it was from the Grateful Dead uh, song, Truckin', because what a long, strange trip it's been. Yeah. And uh, so when when my, they, they tried to get permission and they, they got no response from BMG or whoever to Sony or somebody, they finally, like a month before the manuscripts officially do, they're like, yeah, you're gonna have to redo the whole first, you know, couple paragraphs. And it was, I, it was so funny. We were, uh, when I got the, you know, I signed off on it when I actually got my author copies and I flipped through, um, there is a line in here where I accidentally reference it, but it's in a, such a way that, uh, I can't find it here. Um, uh, oh yeah. How I got here and discovered my passion and ultimately built a successful business around it has been a long, strange trip indeed. Mm. The word indeed technically doesn't mean anything there if there's no reference back to everything I'd already written and nobody caught that. <laughs> so well, it's kind of funny. Little, you, know. you also get a little leeway depending on how much of the lyric you use. Like if you use a whole verse, you're in trouble. But I think... Yeah, and long, strange trip is a... Yeah, that's not a like that's people said long strange trip long before the grateful dead wrote the song yeah you know but it's just it's just funny when you think about like that was the original part like yeah my journey has been a long strange trip indeed it has been you know very circuitous if you like the roadmap you would look at it and you know i've made the same mistake five times you know and eventually learn from it but it's been it's been quite a journey yeah right you know, just thinking, uh, kind of going back to the the author side of things here, because a lot of my listeners are aspiring authors themselves. Um, you know, th there's a few lessons here, right? Number one is have something to say, which you clearly do as a subject matter expert. But two, you've got to be persistent in in saying it or writing it every single day, um, yep. because you need to build up that momentum. And it sounds like, you know, it, it sounds like a, like a too good to be true, like late night TV ad. You know, even with 20 minutes a day or 17 minutes a day in your case, um, you too can be an author, you know, but but there yeah. is something to that, being able to have that discipline and persistence to sit down and write every day. I think part of it is we see it as like, you got to go to a cabin for five days and write the whole thing in five days. You got to be like uh, Sylvester Stallone and stay up for three days writing the manuscript for Rocky, you know, the screenplay for Rocky. No, most of us have lives. Like I've got, I mean, I, I wrote this book. I said, busiest time of my life. We were running two product launches, massive product launches. We'd hired two new people. We were scaling up our business and our kids, you know, it was in a, in a season where both of our kids were suddenly playing, you know, advanced soccer. And we had a lot of stuff to go to. And I've made a commitment. Like I'm not missing their games. If, if I'm in town, you know, I'm not missing their games for pretty much anything other than, you know, trips with my wife or something else, you know, dramatic. Um, so those weren't options like going away to a cabin for three weeks, just you know, two weeks wasn't an option. Even just going to a hotel for a couple of weeks or taking eight hours a day to write was it's, it's literally not an option. So what I didn't want to do, and I think the lesson there is like, for me, we look at that and go, okay, well, I just I'm not going to do anything, but actually there was something about every day spending the 20 minutes that 
in the back of my mind, my brain was percolating on what was to come. And mm. so what I would do the, those last three minutes, I said, I would, I would literally spend, you know, somewhere between 30 seconds and 90 seconds finishing whatever I was writing. And then I would just put like two to five bullet points. Like it would say like, tell story about dad. In the context of what I was writing, I knew what that meant. I've told the story before I wrote the book. So I knew, okay, great. I just need to type that story here. Um, obviously in a book, you can, you can do more than you can. If you're trying to tell the story with a group of friends, you know, in 45 seconds, you know, we can take a couple of minutes to tell it in a book, but I, I was like, tell story about dad, uh, talk about, you know, uh, revolutionary leaders, you know, uh, share the seven ro you know, role archetypes. And I would like, I would just, I know the seven or the eight, sorry, there's eight, uh, the eight role architectures. I'm the one who invented them, you know? So I know what they are. I know the examples, but if I came down the next day and stared at a blank page, um, well, first of all, I spend the first five minutes trying to figure out what I'm trying to write. But the other thing is when I said share the role archetypes, here's what would happen. When I knew that the next day I was going to write that, my brain was percolating on it. And I remember, for example, uh, one of the, one of the things that I, one of the role archetypes, for example, is the master maestro. That's the first one where you're like the super expert and you lead with authority, prestige and expertise. Right. And I remember as I was somehow, I knew I was going to be writing that the next day. And I, then that night, my wife and I had a little bit of time and we were, we decided to start watching Lord of the Rings. And as I'm watching it, I went, oh, Gandalf. Gandalf is the perfect example of the master maestro. He doesn't lead for like Frodo. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Frodo is the jolly journeyman or the hesitant hero. Frodo is the hesitant hero. And then, and then it started going. I was like, Harry Potter, he's the jolly journeyman. The next thing you know, I start connecting all these dots. And I had like a, a real life examples of these people. But then all of a sudden I had fictional examples, which everybody knows. So the cordial caregivers, Mary Poppins, for example, right? And I had these examples because in my brain, if I didn't know that the next day I was going to write that, I never would have made that connection. And yeah, it was a lucky circumstance. I could have watched that movie four days later. I could have watched it three days earlier. But sometimes our subconscious is working on stuff and we don't even realize it. That only happens when you spend even just 20 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever number of minutes every single day doing that. Right. That's where that comes from. You do not need to go to a cabin in the woods to write a book. No, you don't. But also writing is more than just the act of writing. Like, you know, you could be writing while you're going out for a long run or doing something completely different. Like it doesn't necessarily involve actually typing or writing something down. It can be your brain percolating on, you know, mm -hmm. things, letting your subconscious chew on it. And oftentimes that's really important to the writing process because then you come back the next day a little bit more fresh, but with a plan of what it is you're going to write. I mean, you're right. If, if you sit and just stare at a blank page, there, there's, there's few things more intimidating than staring at a blank page and not knowing, you know, what you're going to write. Don't do it. Yeah. 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 I would um, say 5%, maybe 7% of the book, Mike, was written on what I call the magic rectangle. Yeah. Everybody has one in their pocket, smartphone. And I would be like, boom. And I would just record an audio message to myself. Um, idea for step seven. Uh, talk about, you know, different leaders from history and how that pertains to platform building and the lessons we can learn from them and how they fought against a common enemy. A uh, good example of that, Jesus, Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, uh, talk about some negative examples and how they use these principles, blah, 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 
for bad, but how they could be used for good, like Stalin and Genghis Khan. All right, end of message. And then I would, if I really had like an outline that I really thought it was fresh and I didn't actually have that like documented, like that example I just gave is one that I'm pretty sure actually happened. Um, and I knew what I was trying to say just from hearing my audio message. And then I would play that audio message when I got back and I would just type up my notes real quick. If it was more of like a five minute story where I told the story in detail and wasn't, it's not a story I've told a bunch where I had it really codified, then I would record it and I would send it to my virtual assistant and he would just transcribe it. Mm-hmm. And then he would send it to me and I would say, Hey, put this in, you know, step six of the book on this, you know, here's the link to the manuscript, put this in step six, just copy and paste it there under the section that says such and such. And he would copy and paste it. And then four days later, I'd come to that section and be like, Oh, boom, got it. And I basically have already written it, but I just needed to clean it up a little bit. And so those are the types. Yeah. I mean, I'd say a good five to 8% of the book was written verbally in the magic rectangle. Well, two thoughts on, on what you just said there. One being, um, you know, when I was in the middle of writing a novel, for example, uh, my kids are, we have triplets. They're 20 years old now, about to be 21 in a few months. They're in college, mm. right? So I don't, I don't really spend as much time with them. I don't drive them to school anymore. But in those days, when I did drive them to school, if I were in the middle of a novel, I would have a thought like on the way to school. And I'd be like, hey, kids, um, can somebody just write this down and text it to me? Uh, knife is yeah. found under pillow or some like crazy Something crazy. And they're nope. like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, don't worry. I'm just writing something down. And I didn't want to forget the thought, you know? Um, yeah. I had a few of those as well. Like, Hey, I'd, yeah. I'd be with my wife and my wife is my business partner and our CFO. And I would say, uh, Oh, can you slack me? Can you slack me real quick? Okay. What do you want me to slack? Cause I'd be driving, you know? And I'd be like, uh, step seven archetypes, you know, whatever the, like, I'll know what it means, you know, uh, step, you know, uh, Second chapter, uh, story about John F. Kennedy. What does that even mean? I, I got it. I know exactly what it means. And yeah, I would come back the next day and it would say story of John F. Kennedy. Boom. And I'd just start typing, you know, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. When he delivered his speech at Rice, yada, yada. I, I, that's all I needed. But if I didn't document that in that moment, I don't know that I'd ever remember to put that in step two, Yeah, you know, or in chapter two. So yeah, it can even be that simple. You know, just that little note. All I got to do is just said story about John F. Kennedy. I got, I wrote, you know, an 800 word uh, section of the book from story of John F. Kennedy. I got, that's all I need. I knew exactly what it meant. Yeah. The other thought that I had as you were talking, um, you know, you you talk about this misperception that, hey, you got to go to a cabin in the woods and, and just like do nothing for weeks at a time, but right. When reality, the reality is you do it in chunks. But another misconception, I think, is that writing is a completely solitary process. And just hearing you talk, mm. there is a fair amount of collaboration that happens. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, that 20 minutes you're spending a day or, or whatever it is, you know, you, you may be alone. However, there comes a time when, you know, whether it's you know, having, asking somebody to text you something or Slack you something, in my case, it's my kids, um, but there comes a point in time where it becomes a very collaborative process because you're working with an agent, you're working with an editor, you're working with your publisher to, to really refine because your first draft is never, you know, is not what goes to publication. So can you talk to me a little bit about sort of the collaborative process with those other partners, whether it's a, an editor, an agent, uh, the publisher? 
Yeah. I mean, I've already mentioned like, you know, my team members and, and, and wife were involved. Um, I also reached out to, but I would go to Facebook and I, I was like, I need a good example of how someone creates a rhythm in their content and, and how like the important thing when you're creating content is not that you follow a certain system, but that you have a system. And so I was like, who has a system? D, you know, DM me. I got four great examples. They're in the book, Brenda Sturr, uh, Mike Berry, Jan Koch, and, and uh, mine. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, who's the fourth? Uh, mine. I, that's right there. And I got three great, and they're great in the book. And it points out like, these are different ones. So there, you can evolve stuff from, I went to, there was a particular word I was looking for. And I had spent five minutes on powerthesaurus.com and I could not find the word. What I do, I went to Facebook and said, here's the word I'm looking for. Boom, boom, boom. Could somebody please tell me what this word is? And Debbie Steinberg-Kuntz, who's one of our, she's in the acknowledgements because of that. And I said, who can tell me what I'm trying to say here? It was like the fifth comment. She came up with exactly what I was trying to say. I'm like, boom, like that's the collaborative nature of that. So then you go to, uh, for us, I you know, had an agent, uh, Kevin Anderson, amazing guy. Uh, I said, Kevin, you know this business. I don't know how to do this. Uh, here's my book proposal as I've written it. Do whatever you want to it. I don't care. So he would come back to me like, are you okay? I said, stop asking me if I'm okay. I don't care if you put a pink freaking elephant on the cover of this thing. If it gets a major publisher, that's all I care about. I don't care about anything else. You are the expert. I was referred to you because you were the best at this. So stop asking me questions. <laughs> and finally he did. He just, he sent me the thing. He said, I remember he sent me the final draft and said, as soon as you sign off on this, um, you know, and this is like a 45 page book proposal, right? Or whatever. He said, as soon as you sign off on this, I'm going to send it to the people. About an hour later, I said, I've signed off on that. And I put in parentheses for the record, I did not look at it. <laughs> you know, you are the expert. So that's the collaborative nature. That's not really yeah. collaborative. It's like you find the expert and you let them do it. Now, the editing process. So we had four editors. We had uh, a main developmental editor. Um, gosh, I cannot think of her name. She was awesome. Uh, uh, Camille. Uh, Camille, she um, she would go through and she did the whole like themes and, okay, on a, you know, uh, in chapter two, you say this, but in chapter eight, you say this, and it could be misconstrued as contradicting what you said in chapter two. Oh, you're right. I see how people could think that. Let me reword that so that's not all that stuff, right? She's doing that. It's not doing any of the line by line stuff. Like I know she fixed a few typos as she caught them, but yeah. she's more focused on like the general flow of it. And honestly, Matt, this sentence here, it's too, you know, it's just too much of a tangent. We need to just take it out. This thing here doesn't work, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, we got that down. We took out some sections. We shortened the book. And then the copy editors came in and basically did the, you know, one by one, line by line. Um, they sent me the final manuscript, same kind of thing. I I looked through about 10 parts of it, you know, 10 pages. And I'm like, they didn't fundamentally change anything. Yeah, I'm going to trust them. You know, and you go, that's scary. Well, I've read the final manuscript eventually once I got the book. Um, it's perfect. I'm not saying it's a perfect book in that sense, but it's exactly what I would – the parts that they changed, they made them better. Um, so there's – yeah, it's a you know a whole thing. And then the layout. You got the layout of the book. And, like, you know, I love – like, this is because when you're an author, this is, like, the funniest thing. The things that, like, make you the giddiest was when they did the uh, – the chapter headings, 
and they got back to me and there's this, I'll show it to you. There's this little thing. It says step eight, mm-hmm. you know, for example, and there's that little arrow. And I just went, that is the coolest thing. It's a freaking arrow, <laughs> <laughs> but it fits the cover yeah. of the book. And they created this cool theme. And then we had our graphic designer. Now that is something I worked with like our graphic designer on. So we have declarations throughout the book and there's a little megaphone and it stands out. And I had him key points. So when you have a key point, there's actually a key, you know, with the key point and uh, things like that. And the way that they did the the little, we call them call outs where it's like on the side and it has the little quote that calls it out. I was like, Oh, I love how you guys did that. And I just love the way they formatted it and the fonts they chose. And, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know, like between the cover design and the layout, then there's a separate person who lays out the back cover and the flaps. And it's like 10, you know, 10, 12 people from Ben Bella are involved uh, in the, it's crazy, you know, and then, oh, and then you got the person in addition to all those editors, you got the final person who does the stuff, like I said, where they go in and make sure that you don't say something you're not legally allowed to say, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, beast yeah. <laughs> you know of the process. It, it, it's you know you know I, I have a mark marketing background spent a lot of time in consumer packaged goods um on my own uh, market research firm now but you know writing a book getting it published it's it's very much like launching a product like bringing a product to market it it yeah. not something that happens overnight a lot of the steps you know are similar from uh you know drafting a concept which in this case would be a manuscript to, to doing a proof of concept you know in in my world that's market research in other worlds that's kind of getting it in front of you know beta readers and an agent um and people who are experts at making a an assessment of whether or not this thing is is market worthy um you know through you know packaging you know doing the book cover um getting it into distribution you know getting it on in 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 stores like there's there's so many parallels to um mm-hmm. writing a book and then you know, even launching a a product in the world but w- what i'm curious about um what do you hope you know a, a reader takes away from your book um you know just imagine who who the um the ideal reader is for you what do you hope they take away you know the biggest thing i mean the whole premise of the book mike the whole entire premise of the book hinges on one belief and that's that the world needs your message. And what I hope people get away or take away from it is, you know, in the very beginning of the book, I talk about the world needs your message, but we're not going to wait passively or patiently for it. You know, we need your message, but we will move on without it. So we will find somebody else to solve the problem. They might not be as good as you though. We might not be able to relate to them as well as we relate to you, you know, but we will move on without your message, but we need it. That kind of sounds like those contradict each other, but they don't because there are potentially hundreds of thousands, even millions of people right now desperately waiting for you to share your message with them. And if we can get that mindset, all right, I'm a messenger. That's what this new economy is all about. I'm a messenger. How do I get my message out into the world and turn it into a profitable business? That's that's what the path is all about. That's what step one through step 10 take you from. And so I hope that, I mean, that's the big thing. Like the world needs my message. And you have clarity at the end of chapter one, you know, step one, I hope you have clarity on, okay, this is my passion because I, I thought my passion, I mentioned earlier, I thought my passion was leadership and personal development. I thought my passion was to be the next Tony Robbins. I was having an impact on people. I just wasn't making any money off of it. And I thought that was my passion. And then one day, you know, I, I was walking down the stairs one night, Mike, and I, I just had one of those moments. It was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know where it came from, but I was just floored. And 
we had had a super peaceful bedtime that night. It was one of those nights. If you got kids, I know you do, you got triplets. Holy crap. Uh, you know, if you, you know that they fight at bedtime sometimes, and sometimes all they have to do is floss and brush their teeth and put their jammies on. How does that take more than seven minutes? And yet here we are 18 minutes later and they still don't have any of the three done. Um, how is it that they are fighting? How is it that they've managed to do this and that? But we had this super peaceful, perfect bedtime. And as I was walking down the stairs, I had a thought hit me because a few weeks before I'd helped my friend Dana Abraham, who's in the parenting niche. She has a course called Calm the Chaos. And I was on the phone with her. We were talking about business stuff. And I said, Dana, do you need some help with your affiliate program? Like, can I help you? I've got a little bit of time. Can I come in and help you run this thing? She said, could you please? Sure. Over the next couple of weeks, I did what I do. I helped her affiliates to make more sales. Uh, I helped her go from about $125,000 launch to over a $300,000 launch. I helped one affiliate who had a goal of five sales make 40 sales. I helped one who made zero the time before make 17. I helped her top affiliate go from 30 to 60 sales. And at the end of that, I'm going, I did, I did what I do. I helped entrepreneurs because I have a heart for entrepreneurs. I have a heart for people who want to escape the cube and, and work for themselves and, and make an impact on the world. I'm like, I helped a bunch of entrepreneurs make more money. That makes me a winner. You know, that's what I did here. Woohoo! Helped her 3X her income. I helped all these entrepreneurs make twice as much, three times as much, 17 times as, as much money. Good for me. When I was standing on those stairs that night, Mike, I realized, oh my gosh, there were hundreds of other families having the same experience I just had. Their lives are chaotic. Their bedtimes are chaotic. Their kids are chaotic. But they're not so chaotic now because I helped some affiliates sell some more of her courses. All I did was what I do. I, I taught affiliate marketing. I taught online marketing. It's the thing that I'm uniquely qualified to do. I, I didn't teach them how to do parenting. I didn't give them a parenting tip. I didn't give them a life hack. I taught affiliate marketing, something so inconsequential when you really think about it. And so for years, I had been told, Matt, you need to teach this stuff. You got to teach this stuff. And I'd say, I don't want to be the affiliate guy. I don't want to be the online marketing guy. That, what a stupid thing to do. That is not going to have an impact on the world. There's a reason why my, my podcast today is called The Affiliate Guy, Mike. And it's actually nothing to do with branding. I wish I'd been that smart. People introduced me. Matt's the affiliate guy. I'm like, I guess so. You know, I didn't realize I was doing that when I branded my podcast with that. I branded my podcast as the affiliate guy as a reminder to me, don't ever forget how you felt on those stairs. Don't ever forget that your little thing that means almost nothing in the, con, you know, in the scope of the world. I didn't discover a cure for a deadly disease. I, I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't free people from slavery. I mean, what did I really do? But don't ever forget the impact that you had through doing the thing that you're uniquely qualified to do. And I think that applies to everybody. We all diminish the impact that we can have doing something seemingly small, but actually it can be huge. And, and somewhere out there, there's an older woman in a lavender sweater who can't break a hundred. So let's just think about her for a moment. <laughs> Thanks um, for bringing me back to that one. <laughs> we, we, we dug into the book a little bit. I want to pause. I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more. One way I do that is through pop culture. So uh, Matt, I'd love for you to tell me besides uh, Allie McBeal, uh, what were some of your favorite TV shows that you watched when you were growing up? You know, I'm weird. I didn't, I rarely, I don't watch a lot of TV and didn't even when I was younger. Uh, so I'm going to give you a surprisingly surprising answer. Um, 
it was, uh, I don't even remember the name of it. It was the precursor to WCW wrestling. I was a huge wrestling fan when I was a kid. I, I had like, I grew up with a single mom who worked three jobs just to, you know, just to help us survive. And the one thing that I had no shortage of was wrestling action figures. Yeah. Um, that was the, like, I didn't have very many toys and we never went on trips, but I had about 15 action figures in a wrestling ring that I could play with. And so I, I could be found watching a lot of, uh, I think it was called NWA back then. Or something and it was like absolutely World. NWA. It was NWA. Yeah. NWA. Yeah. With Ric Flair and the four Ric Flair and nature boy. Uh, sure. So I had a chance to meet him one time. Um, he was an honorary coach for Wake Forest basketball. Uh, and I was there and had some connections to, to Wake Forest basketball and got a chance to, to meet Ric Flair. Um, and actually, we had a, a dog. I was working on a, a congressional campaign in 2004, and we had two dogs. One was named Reagan, and the other was named Nate, as in Nature Boy, Ric Flair. So, yeah, I, I, I was a huge wrestling fan. It was kind of weird. And well, if I you haven't want, watched in probably 25 years, but, yeah. If you want to dabble into a, a back into TV, there's a great 30 for 30 on ESPN with Ric Flair. It's Oh, my fantastic. goodness. I'll have to it's watch fantastic. that. Yeah. So, I was, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a second answer. So, yeah, wrestling – and the other one, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a sh uh, thing called Body by Jake. Oh, sure. And it came on at 7.30 in the morning. And I would do Body by Jake for 30 minutes every day. And when I was eight, I'm not joking, I would be like doing the workouts with Body by Jake. It was the dumbest thing when I think back on it. Like what eight-year-old is watching Body by Jake? But that was my, like for some reason, I, I, I don't know. I did it. So it made me yeah. feel good. I've kind of like, I've always done that even – even when I wasn't in like good shape, I've always been active, you know, I've always been active. So, yeah. They say the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and body by Jake could have been your single step. So um, no shame there. Body by Jake is actually what happens. Yeah. I was, um, <laughs> I, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut in the shadow of like my, ESPN, yeah. right now. well, ESPN, but uh, WWE or WWF as it was when I was a kid. Is it so, really? I did not I know a, that. That was a big presence. Hulk Hogan, uh, Terry Bollea himself, lived in my town. Um, That's awesome. I used to see him rolling up on his Harley uh, at the diner. Um, so we were oh. big um, WWF guys. Um, and we're totally uh, nerding out on. Oh, we! I could right nerd now. out all afternoon. All afternoon, <laughs> I could nerd out on this. But uh, I will move yeah. on. Um, not much of a TV guy. What about music? What kind of music were you listening to, if any, back uh, in, in your formative years? Uh, Counting Crows has been the band it was it was something that bonded i mentioned my friend hunter uh that was our our band i mean it's been it's been the band i've listened to like i, I can still remember they have a song called recovering the satellites mm -hmm. i was on their second album called recovering the satellites and this song um i know exactly where i was listening to this song i was turning off of i-65 to i-40 leaving nashville to go to college and i heard this song and it was like you know, it's one of those songs. Can I listen to it now? I I am taken back to when I was, you know, eighteen years old. Um, I mean, there's this. It's just you know, the song is all about leaving your hometown, and and I, I didn't do it intentionally. I just happened to have the tape. You remember tapes? Yeah, um, sure. The tape was in, and that song has had such an impact. And I finally had a chance about eight years ago to go see them. And Hunter has become really good friends with Dave Bryson, who's the uh, the lead guitarist uh, for the band. Um, and so I've had an opportunity to, you know, meet them and, um, uh, and things like that. They were the, they were the band growing up need to breathe is another, probably my favorite band now. And, uh, have a client of ours, a good friend of mine, Chandler Bolt, who's 
I literally talked to Chandler for like an hour one day, got to know him. And then after talking to him, I Google him. And the first listing is, you know, need to breathe basis. Seth Bolton, his brother Chand is what it says on the thing. And I go, I click on it and I go, I call him back and I go, dude, is your brother Seth Bolton? He's like, yeah. Like, oh my gosh. He's like, dude, you're not gonna believe this. We're gonna, they're gonna be in Indianapolis three days from now. Uh, Let me get you tickets. And there, you know, like three days later, we're sitting front, you know, five rows deep, dead center. A uh, couple months later, we're backstage with them, you know, getting to hang out with the band. So they've become kind of my favorite band since then. But yeah, those two, like a lot yeah. of, I like Southern rock, alternative, you know, stuff like that. But I'm all over the place. I'll listen to rap. I'll listen to, I love country. I've, the older I get, the more country music I listen to. It's weird, you know. Um, I like everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had Chandler on this uh, show last year. Um, cool. And he referenced that his brother was in a band. We didn't talk about it because um, obviously yep. the episode was about him, but. Uh, interesting. He's, he's an interesting guy. He does great work with, um, with aspiring authors. Um, so that's, yeah. uh, that's yeah. great. So you're counting crows. Chandler, also. If you've bought anything from Chandler, there's a decent chance we were indirectly responsible for that. So interesting. <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, uh, I'll have him thank you on my behalf. Uh, but, um, your, your counting crows is my Pearl jam. So I, I was moving up. <sighs> Love to... Pearl jam. Yeah. Moving up to the University of Connecticut, the fall of 1992, um, I was with my buddy Nick. Uh, we were in a truck that we borrowed from our church because none of us had a, a car big enough to to carry all of our crap. And we we popped into a tape deck, um, Pearl Jam's Ten. And now, anytime mm-hmm. I hear any song off of that of that tape, um, I immediately think of that day, driving up to UConn, moving into my freshman dorm. It's uh, yep. it's funny how music has a way of, of doing that to you. Yeah, that was such a great album. Yeah, the entire book, this is a side note, the entire book, I listened to the same track over and over again. Uh, it's about a three-minute track. It's called, it's just the intro by the XX. Um, and it's just got a can kind of consistent beat. I mean, I could, I could do it right now, but it would be pretty, it'd be pretty bad, so I'm not going to. Uh, just look up, you know, the XX intro. And uh, there's a YouTube video that has a 10 hour loop of it. Wow. And uh, I just listen. I, every time I wrote the book, it was like, press play, start writing, press play. Cause it's just, you know, cause I'm a, I'm a, I'm an antsy person, you know, I've got ADD. So I'm like, I don't just, I can't do the whole like while I'm writing, you know, or something like that. I can't do words. If it has words, I'm, I gotta yeah. have something that has no words to it. I can't even do instrumentals to songs with words. Cause next thing you know, I'm like, you're thinking of the word that, you know, so no, I got to do the, the XX intro. That's my writing music. Um, you know, this being your first book, um, any lessons you learned the hard way or anything about the writing slash publishing process that really surprised you or threw you for a loop? Uh, yeah. Uh, publishers don't like 117,000 word manuscripts. No, they do not. <laughs> At least on a first nonfiction business book, you know, that's not, it's not cool. Um, you eventually have to kill some sacred cows. Hmm. Um, I went through the, I went through the whole book. Got through about 7,000 words. I'm like, great. 110,000. They're like, you got to get to 75. Just between yeah. us, we ended up compromising about 82, 83. And cause I told him, I'm, I'm like, I'm done. I cannot cut anymore. And y'all are just gonna have to print this dang thing. Or I'm, I'm, I'm here's my advance back. Screw you. <laughs> you know, I'm going to find somebody else. And um, they were like, okay, fine. You know, but I got it down to like 110. I'm like, well, that didn't work. You know, that was eliminating like sentences and occasional paragraphs or, 
you know, I, I did a few like changing we are to we're, you know, get, contractions got it down by about 400 words. Woo. And then eventually it got to the point where I had to kill sacred cows. And I, I am talking like, you know, I had 21 ways to create more content and I'm like, got to go with 13. No, I got to eliminate eight of them, but I like all eight. And it was brutal. Um, just, I mean, I remember the one part where I deleted the entire, so I had a chap, chapter called the launch pad. Remember that one I told you earlier about the story about John F. Kennedy, my favorite chapter in the entire book. It is not in the printed book. Powerful chapter, but it doesn't move the person forward. Yeah. It kind of keeps them where they already were at the end of chapter one and it, it gets them really ready. But we took one page of that that eight page chapter and put it at the end of chapter one and eliminated the entire rest of it. And I remember taking that cursor, clicking on shift and then pulling it down and clicking at the end of this section and then clicking the delete button and going, mm, that sucked, but I did it. And we ended up getting it to the point where it could, it could actually, uh, so I got it down to about 87,000 and then the editor was able to figure out a few ways to creatively get it down to about 82 and a half. And that was, we were good to go. Yeah. That was the part and, that I was totally shocked by. It was brutal. Editing, editing means making tough choices and um, you're yeah. right. You got to kill some of your babies there, but, um, mm -hmm. but maybe it's an opportunity for bonus content. Um, That's my tip. Online, we have right? it all in a Google doc and some of the bonuses uh, and I've even shared some on the podcast and stuff like that. Like, here are some of the stories that I couldn't tell in the book. And it became some of its paid content. Um, and then some of it's free when you pre-order the book, you know, things like that. Like a lot of that extra stuff we turned into other, you know, other content. And it, yeah. yeah, that's a, uh, you can do it. We did not do this, uh, but even like you could add it in the audio book, you know, as like additional stuff, um, you know, things like that. There's a lot of stuff you can do with that stuff that you have to cut. So you mentioned country music before I call this my Brad Paisley letter to me question. If you could go back in time or if you could write a letter to a, your younger self, you could pick the age, you know, however, however old you want to be. Um, but you, if you could write a letter, mail it to your younger self, have your younger self read it. What kind of words of advice would you share with your younger self? Uh, it'd probably be about one line. Stop asking how, start asking who. Tell me um, more about that. I already know. I already know people who know how to do the things that I want to do. And we've all been there as business owners, like the banging your head against the table um, going, how do I do this? Right. How do I make the website look like I want it to look? How do I, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, how, how, how we Google things, stop Googling things, go to Facebook and say, who do I know that knows how to solve this problem already? I don't want to become an expert on any of those things. So why would I want to know how to do them? You know, people like all the time, I'm like, I don't really want to know how to garden. I, I know people, I go to church with a guy who owns a landscaping company. I can just have him do it. And okay. Even before I had money to be able to do that, I could find somebody who at least knew a little bit about it and come over and make it look decent and not have to pay them that much money. Or they might love to do it. Or I could barter with them, you know, Hey dude, I'll teach you how to get more leads for your business. If you'll just do the gardening, you know, I'll get you 10 new clients. I hope you get 10 new clients if you, if I can be a client for free. Yeah. You know, there are ways you can do these things that don't necessarily require money. Most of the time we already know somebody. I mentioned earlier, I didn't need to go Google and look up stories about content creation, you know, that were in the public domain that I could use in my book. I just went to Facebook and asked people that I already knew. And that was an easy way. I asked 
I could have spent 10, 15, 20 minutes trying to figure out that stupid word. I don't even remember what word it was. Um, I have to go back and find that out. I'm kind of curious now. I'm gonna go find that Facebook post. I'm like, because I know it was Debbie that got it. And I thank her in the book. And I think it even says like for, for figuring out what word I was trying to think of on page something, something, you know, which one it is. Um, I could have figured, I could have taken me 20, 30 minutes to figure that out. That's an entire writing session for me. What did I do? I went to Facebook and I asked the question and I put in, a, in the manuscript, it just said word, you know, figure out word here. In, and I just moved on with it. That's asking who, not how. That's the, that would be the biggest thing I would do. I spent way too much time beating my head against the wall, trying to figure out how, when I already knew multiple people who knew how to solve the problem. Um, Matt, where can people buy, turn your passions into profits? And um, also, I, I know you do have a, a, um, a, a pre-order bonus going on now. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, you can get the book absolutely anywhere. Um, if, and this is one of those things, you do a bunch of these interviews. We're going to go back behind the, the scenes here. Do a bunch of these interviews. And usually you're pretty good at remembering the URL before you go live. Well, I'm not because uh, they got a special URL. You can buy it anywhere. If they sell books, they sell it. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart, you name a place. Like we just had an order for four books for this like obscure bookstore in Hamilton, Ontario the other day. My publisher just thought that was cool. And they were like, look, we got four orders in here. You know, it was like Leo's bookstore in Hamilton, Ontario or something. I was like, that's cool. You know, like that's awesome. Uh, now I got to go to Hamilton and sign them or something. I don't know. You know, I think that'd just be fun. I think that'd be fun to just go to like a few random bookstores that have it, you know, that have like three copies and just be like, Hey, um, but you can get it anywhere. But if you go to passions into profits, book.com forward slash Harlan. So that is how you pronounce your last name. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That, that's it. Yeah, and I'll, 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 so. I'll, I'll, I'll be George. sure to put that in the show notes as well. So yeah. people don't have to like write this down in the car. Or go there. Passions into profits, book.com forward slash Carlin. I know you'll put that in the show notes, Mike. Uh, there's a ton of, I mentioned them earlier, like some of the content that we had to take out that hidden content that there's uh, the whole first chapter is about clarifying who you help and creating an ideal customer avatar. And I've got an extra bonus lesson on that. Um, there's an email marketing workshop. There's just tons of other stuff that you get, you know, uh, in excess of $500 worth of extra bonuses exclusively through that link. So make sure you guys go there because that's the best place to get it. Very good. Uh, Matt, um, thank you for uh, stopping by Uncorking Your Story and letting me uncork yours. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.